Welcome to TNT with Teresa Quinlan and Reese Thomas. We are friends from across the pond on a life evolution. We want to bring you topics that challenge your status quo, guests that help you think differently, and nuggets of wisdom that spark being. Being what? You. Authentic you. Today we're going to welcome Dr. Shungu Mugadza. Now, take a listen to this biography. More than 30 years of experience since qualifying as an educational psychologist in 1990. I bet you some of our listeners weren't even born then. She's a psychology diversity and inclusion consultant, has a doctorate in emotional intelligence. Yes. Her career includes working for seven years in higher education, teaching postgraduate educational psychology students. She's worked as a psychologist within health, education, independent special schools, has been appointed to a number of consultant posts, including head of special educational needs and disability. She's the co-founder of Psychologists on Boards. She's created the Six Stages Conceptual Framework for Understanding and Dealing with Racism, designed for individuals and organizations, which we are very excited to hear more about. She's chaired a number of committees, including the British Psychological Society's Division for Education and Child Psychologists. She has a number of journal and article publications, including a publication of her thesis on emotional intelligence in the UK Parliament's Children and Young People's Mental Health, the Role of Education. Wow, wow, wow. Welcome <laughs> to TNT. Thank you going to be a lot to dive into here. I'm really excited by this. And uh, Teresa, you want to kick us off with your usual question? I do. I'm so excited. Like passion, obsession, occupation has to come from somewhere. Perhaps our personal experiences, finding what our purpose is in life. So how did you come to be doing this kind of work? Yes, I mean, that's a really good question. I think when I think about where my passion and purpose comes from, I immediately think of my parents. I grew up in Zimbabwe, came to England when I was eight. My parents always taught us the value of education and the value of making a difference. So really kind of what brought me into this line of work is my passion for, for helping people and removing barriers to those things which get in the way of us achieving what we want to achieve. Fantastic. So there are various steps through in the introduction that Teresa went through. We've got the psychology, we've got the EQ. Uh, it's great to have someone on the show who actually knows about EQ for once, uh, <laughs> or, or certificate <laughs> to prove it. I think um, that was a jab. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have someone even more knowledgeable than Teresa. Yeah. So um, in terms of the journey, you said there, the value of education, you began in, in higher education. You talked about overcoming barriers, leveling the playing fields, equality, inclusion. How did that become part of your story? Is there a personal experience which propelled you towards that purpose? I actually started off working as a primary school teacher. But before that, you know, I, when I was training and studying psychology, it's a rather funny story. I set up a problem page called Dear Hilda. Um, Hilda is my middle name. To be quite honest, we used to make up some of the problems, you know, about, and then <laughs> provide answers to them. And someone from the student union actually said to me, you know, you know, you're really good at this. Have you thought about becoming a psychologist? 
So, you know, he kind of sent me off and said, I've got someone I work with who I think you should meet. So I went off and spent a day with an educational psychologist. And so it was quite random how I fell into educational. You know, it was really just kind of through that connection, someone seeing that ability I had to connect with people and to make a difference. In terms of where I am now, I think one of the things I'm really keen to do is to use all of my skill sets you know, when you say, what is my purpose, about using that to make a difference and thinking about the psychology, thinking about the emotional intelligence, thinking about my experience in working with diverse groups and working with children and young people, and really thinking about how do we remove barriers to support people to be able to do the things they want to? How do we empower and support others who are not able to do that? The other thing I'm really keen on is around the whole promoting mental well-being for individuals in the workplace and in schools. I'm really kind of at that juncture where I'm using all of those skill sets. And, you know, in terms of diversity and inclusion, we're faced with these massive changes in society where suddenly people are looking for direction and support in this area. So it feels like two meeting points. You know, there's a void in society and I'm using my skills to fully meet some of those needs. To fill the void because to fill the void. 30 years of experience where someone said, I see something in you. And a lot of times when someone will say something like that to us, we'll have that surge of motivation that drives us towards something. And then perhaps a few years go by and we go, eh, maybe this really isn't my thing. <laughs> However, you had that surge of motivation to go back into school and to train and now you've stayed in it for a really long time what keeps you in it what keeps me in it is really my passion for making a difference and, and my passion for working with marginalized groups and making that difference. Whilst it's been 30 years, I've done lots of different roles during those 30 years. And in a sense, my kind of work in the diversity and equality and inclusion space has been really in the last three years in terms of actually really immersing myself in that work. Prior to that, I was leading committees, I was doing a lot around diversity and inclusion, but it wasn't as focused. So I think what keeps me in it is the opportunities to engage in different roles over those years and to really get a sense of what is important to me and what is the difference that I can make within this space. And I really feel that certainly with everything which has, has gone on in terms of the murder of George Floyd, the uprising and the crying out around the social injustice we've seen around the world, I feel that it really has opened people's eyes really to why the area of diversity and inclusion is so important. Around that is really what's keeping me motivated and it just fires me up on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I, I have so much energy driving me because I really feel that what I've got to offer can make a difference. Yeah, I love that. And certainly in these uncertain and changeable times, there's an unending amount of grist for the mill to keep you inspired, to keep you going back to making a difference as that's another of my core values. So I feel that same kind of hard connection to that purpose. You talked about the various different things that you specialize in, but what I'm particularly interested in at the school level, at the junior level, um, there, there was something in, in the intro that Teresa said about emotional intelligence, um, the parliamentary for schools. Could you tell us a bit about that and how important it is that all these things we're, we're trying to face as adults 
would be so much easier or maybe avoidable if we were taught just a little bit about them at school and hopefully that's what you're, you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really important question and I continue to look at some of the mistakes we make in society at our peril really that actually by not meeting the needs of children and young people early enough sometimes we create problems in society way down the line so you know in terms of my thesis I actually conducted that when I was working as, as a tutor I was teaching in higher education and I was teaching MSc education psychologists at that time And I was really kind of curious to see what the contribution of psychologists could be within the emotional intelligence space. So the thesis really kind of centered around looking at the training that educational psychologists need to support them to then help schools in promoting emotional intelligence. It was really kind of fortuitous that the government were were putting together a green paper on mental health. And so they made a call for evidence are you involved in any interesting work in this area? And at that stage, my thesis was about, it was probably about seven years old. And, you know, I kind of thought, oh my goodness, no, I've I've not published this yet. You know, I'd been busy bringing up my daughter and doing other things. And suddenly it was like, even though it's seven years old, it's still very relevant today. Mm -hmm. And the issues which the government were looking at were things like, how do we promote children's emotional well-being? You know, how do we support children to express their emotions and to deal with their feelings? And we know that a large number of children and young people with special educational needs, some of the key challenges they have is around kind of social communication. And when you think about young people with autism and children with autism, those difficulties around social communication and being able to express your feelings and express your emotions are really kind of paramount. And so that's really why I found myself thinking, actually, I have got a contribution to make here. The, the people who were putting together the green paper, you know, recognized, you know, what that contribution could be. When you're trying to make changes within a system, within an organization, it can sometimes be a lot of red tape and barriers in your way, which then can make the work hard or difficult. And the work that you're doing is intended to help other people's mental health and their wellness and well-being. So as you were describing that, I was thinking, how do you? And you have to butt up against all of these barriers and keep pushing for the change and impact you want to see. How do you maintain your own wellness and your own well-being? Gosh, no, Teresa, that's an amazing question. And, you know, I think it's one which I constantly reflect on. And certainly not only by myself, but also when I'm having conversations with others. Mm. It's fair to say that, you know, as a black woman working in education and working in senior leadership roles, it hasn't always been easy. Along my career, I have faced challenges, you know, and I have faced discrimination and I have faced racism. And some of that has really just arisen from challenging the system and asking questions and continuing to advocate and speak up for those people who don't have a voice. Recently, a psychologist who once said to me that she had gone into the profession because she had seen my face on the university bulletin board because I was the first black psychologist working within the department and she had been visiting the university, saw that and, and kind of thought, oh my goodness, there's a black woman. If she can do this, I can do this too. And, and about four years ago, she sent me this message saying, I finally qualified as psychologist. You won't remember me, but you spared me on. And this was all because of you kind of thing, which, which was really great. But she said to me the other day when we were having a conversation, she said to me, 
you know, I really feel that people were not ready for the messages you were trying to deliver all those years ago. But I feel that people are ready now. That question about mental well-being and health, for me, I've been through some tough times. You know, there have been times sometimes where I've had to kind of pick myself up. And I always remember Nelson Mandela saying, you don't measure what someone does through their successes, but through their ability to pick themselves up. I've had to maintain my well-being through those tough times to enable me to continue with the things I'm passionate about. And when you're clear about your purpose, you don't allow those things to stop you and you carry on despite the obstacles and despite the people who would rather keep you down. Fantastic. Um, definitely, you know, in these times where we've been facing the importance of self-care in this period of pause in this period of you know uncertainty opportunity for people to see the benefit of that you know generally people are you know rushing rushing forward forward and you know on with their work maybe it's purposeful maybe it's just you know run of the mill what I really like about your story was well a couple of things the fact that you obviously must have had such a great sort of validation and, and feeling to have this connection with this person who came and is now a friend and I love the fact that you you clearly stayed in touch and no doubt supported her and, and done many more things than, than just be a figurehead to you know inspire her I wonder if you know those things you were talking about there might be a good segue into talking about your six stages conceptual framework I know that it's probably too great to go into too much detail here, but perhaps if we could afford our listeners some of those groundbreaking things you were talking about maybe all those years ago when people weren't ready, but now hopefully we are eager to hear what you have to say. The conceptual framework really excites me. You know, it's something I, you know, I kind of came up with probably about four months ago. It's designed as a tool to support individuals and organizations in assessing and identifying where they are in their ability to understand and deal with racism. It really kind of centers on looking at what are our values as individuals, what are their organizational values, and then mapping out the behaviors which go with some of those values and thinking about how do individuals behave and respond at each of those different stages. So I've basically come up with, with six stages, which I feel describe how individuals operate in their ability to understand and deal with racism. And I'm currently working at making a digital assessment, which then supports the information which is gathered through the, the assessments. And it comes up with a, a diversity wheel, you know, a diversity wheel, like the wheels on the bus, you know, this is my Zimbabwean accent coming out. So, you know, but it comes up with a diversity wheel, which enables individuals and organizations to then identify action plans and think about how they move themselves forward onto the next stage. And the stages are really quite simplistic. You know, it, it is about kind of trying to get a sense of how ready are people to actually engage with challenging racism? What is your understanding in terms of racism? How ready are you to engage with challenging racism? And where are you within this conceptual framework? So the first stage is really one which I call in denial, almost oblivious. Issues of race really do not kind of cross their path. They, they're not interested. You know, they've got other things which they would rather talk about. So often when you're having a conversation with, with someone who's at that stage, you'll often find that they will change the subject, they'll want to talk about something else, you know, they, they'll have greater empathy 
for other things, you know, rather than thinking about empathy for black and ethnic minorities. Sometimes they might say, well, actually, I'd rather talk about three-legged dogs. You know, the plight of three-legged dogs is much more worrying to me than the plight of ethnic minorities. So it's kind of looking at understanding where people are in terms of that journey. So the first stage is that kind of that being oblivious, not being interested. And then the next stage which comes is really much more people are aware of racism. They're aware of the injustice, but they don't really necessarily want to engage with those issues. And then the stages kind of progress. So you've got stage three, which is very much around appreciating that racism exists, but denying that there's such a thing. So you get people talking about conspiracy theories, you get people talking about being outraged and calling other people who call out racism, racist in return. And then the final stage is really where people are much more keen to engage with some of the issues. They understand the concepts around racism. They, they understand the fact that actually we're talking about power, we're talking about structures, we're talking about institutional issues. And they're really keen to be leaders in making changes in terms of the way that you support individuals and organizations to deal with that. So that's kind of a, a quick whiz through the stages. And they come with a conceptual framework which we then use within the training. And we've carried out quite a number of training with organizations so far. The training provides kind of safe and secure spaces for people to think about where am I as an individual? Where is my organization? And how do we move forward to the next stage? And how do we create an action plan to deal with some of the barriers which are stopping us from being inclusive and from fully embracing diversity within our organization. What I think is really excellent about the stages as you were describing them is they also follow the stages of learning. So the unconscious incompetence all the way to the conscious competence, right? And what I'm curious to know is the intersection of emotional intelligence to the stages. Clearly, we could probably say, yeah, low emotional intelligence, we're going to be lower in the stages as an individual. And so the intersection between when you're trying to move people through stages is, are there elements in your programming that include emotional intelligence development? Absolutely. And again, this is where I see that, that crossover of skills and abilities. So for me, it's really important that when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, we bring in in, you know, you know the kind of the, the the tools which are available within our understanding of emotional intelligence. So it's about supporting people to think about not only in terms of how do we phrase things in an emotionally intelligent way to support others to be able to receive the messages. So one of the things I'm doing currently, I'm putting on some training for chairs of boards to really kind of help them think about how do they become more inclusive. And when I was talking to one of my colleagues who I'm working with on this, he's been working within the board level for many years and providing training. And he was reflecting and kind of saying, well, actually, when you look at the makeup of a lot of boards, there's such a lack of inclusivity. And that when you sit around the table, you're faced with mainly white men. And that actually, for some of them, they're not really ready to hear some of the messages we have to offer. So I feel that 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 kind of bringing together of emotional intelligence and thinking about how we package some of those conversations is really key. 
So within the training, we ensure that we create a safe space. We ensure that we, we talk about, you know, one of the key concepts I work on is called building bridges of empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's about kind of supporting people to think about things they, they are compassionate about, things they empathize with, and then thinking about how do we build bridges of empathy from those things to other areas which really, you know, you're not connected with as yet. One of my hashtags has been around without empathy and compassion, we're nothing but animals. You know, it's actually about how do we support individuals to recognize the humanity which connects us all. And I think emotional intelligence has got a real contribution to make in helping individuals to think about not only their own emotions, but also to think about others in return. Wow, so much there to sort of unpick. I mean, I'm conscious that the, you said you've been working on this in the last sort of four or five months. So I'm not sure what kind of on, on the floor sort of experience you've had to, to go through all those wheels and go through these action plans. Um, I'm also interested because you you mentioned um, compassion there as well, which obviously is an important factor for me and, and it obviously doesn't really necessarily fall within the emotional intelligence role. So often in, when we're working with clients or trying to get their attention, we sometimes have to sell them what they want and then give them what they need. So have you found that despite the shifts that have happened and, and changes people have gone through, they're still not really openly ready to, to talk about inclusion and, and, and racism and, and diversity. But if you can model it in such a fashion to talk about emotional intelligence and empathy, which seems to have really entered the, you know, the zeitgeist of what is acceptable and what is attractive, for, certainly for corporates and chairman of the board and that kind of senior level, they need to at least be involved in that area. Is that something that you found that it's a good way in and acceptable entrance point to the real issue of inclusivity and diversity? I think you're right. You know, it is about using language which people are able to engage with. A lot of the time, we're having to rethink how do we introduce some of these concepts mm-hmm. and thinking about actually what are people ready to hear? You know, because a conceptual framework shows people are at very different stages and chairs of boards will be at very different stages. And it's actually about where are you as a board and you know what are some of the conversations you've had to date and packaging the training in a bespoke way to meet their needs and certainly conversations around empathy and conversations around moving beyond unconscious bias because there's been so much talk about unconscious bias there's been so much talk about white privilege that sometimes we need to show that we're moving on beyond unconscious bias. It's like, what does that look like? And how do we begin to focus on other things? So, you know, if I come in and start talking about unconscious bias, you lose them at that start point. And interestingly, I'm aware that, you know, within the UK government, there was an uproar where some of the members of parliament, you know, were were kind of saying, actually, we, we don't want to do unconscious bias training. You know, we feel that we don't need people telling us what to think. And I think sometimes some of the concepts we've used can be a turn-off for certain people. Mm-hmm. So you, we have to find ways of packaging things in a different way, building bridges of empathy and thinking about working on people's personal experiences and sharing their story and getting them to exchange that with another and thinking about actually where does empathy and compassion fit within this. So we do a lot of paired activities, group activities, you know, to help people reflect 
on key things like empathy and emotional intelligence and the, and the steps we need to take to move forward. I'm smiling and only if we publish this clip would people see actually see that. So I'm smiling because what I'm envisioning as an exercise in any organization, with any board, with any executive room, with any team, almost like a sandwich board to promote a special of the day at the restaurant, they would put on their bridge of empathy. It would sit over their shoulders and would extend out from <laughs> their torso halfway in that all day, every day, when I am navigating my life, if I do so with an extended bridge of empathy, then if the other person is also wearing theirs, when we meet, then we connect. Absolutely. We connect. And then okay. there, I have a visual moment of, so I'm interested in your opinion. What would it take for everybody to want to wear that? Yeah, and I think some of what it takes is about the ability to understand another person's journey. You know, I posted something on LinkedIn recently in something shared on Twitter about personal journeys around bereavement and loss. And there was something about walking in someone else's shoes. And I was talking very much about our experiences and the fact that as psychologists, for example, we often will say to someone, I know how you feel, but actually, do we really know how people are feeling and and often I think the ability to understand someone's experiences even though you've not experienced them yourself mm-hmm. and to be able to then think about if I was to walk in this person's shoes what would that be like and to understand some of the pain and some of the suffering which goes with that you know I think it's really providing people with opportunities through the training to tell their own stories, but to hear others' stories and then build those bridges of empathy and connect. If I could add a glib answer to your question, Teresa, the obvious answer is more emotional intelligence. That would help these people be uh, willing to not only metaphorically or physically uh, carry these bridges around, they'd actually you know, be living and, and breathing them and that connection piece would be uh, self-evident. And I think that a lot of the things you're talking about there, I'm like, oh, well, that's an emotional intelligence skill. Oh, you're talking about this. You're talking about flexibility. You're talking about interpersonal Absolutely. relationships. You're talking about empathy, obviously. So I think I want to come back to that idea that we said about bringing emotional intelligence into a mainstream educational point of view. Mm. I know that Teresa and I have talked about this before. Ways and means that the basics, the principles of this, that we can start teaching kids at, at the youngest age, really, you know, at that most receptive age and in ways in which we can do that to better equip us so that we're not in this always reactionary phase. We're not like, oh, how do we solve this problem that we're faced with today when we could be providing the preventative you know, cure for it at this early stage? I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, and no, I think the importance of getting these programs into schools early cannot be underestimated. It's critical. You know, I think when I was talking about the Green Paper, where my thesis was published and the focus on mental health, you know, it's really critical that we equip and support professionals, i.e. teachers, you know, mental health workers, parents, you know, teaching assistants, to actually 
be able to work with children at an early stage in supporting them to recognize their emotions, understand their emotions, put labels to their emotions and be able to talk to others. The need for that work within schools is paramount. And even though with the government's focus within the UK on emotional literacy, and emotional intelligence type strategies has been recognized and they realize that actually it's really key. One of the difficulties we have, and I'm, I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, in other places, but is the lack of resources. So that we don't have enough people working around the mental health agenda and emotional well-being agenda to support children with some of these skills development. I mentioned earlier we fail to put in these early assessments and early interventions and to make a difference at kind of school level at our peril. I'm working currently with young people, teenagers, where it's really clear that it's due to their unmet needs within school. It's due to unmet emotional needs and their inability to talk about their feelings, their inability, their difficulties around social communication and engaging with others, which has actually got them into some of the difficulties, you know, they're in. So for example, you know, a young lady who I've been working with has got herself mixed up with the wrong people, you know, and she real difficulties in school, learning disabilities, social communication difficulties, and you can see how ability to be manipulated and to not really understand what's going on has actually resulted in, in where she is now. There's a need for us as educators to engage with this emotional intelligence curriculum much earlier than we're doing. And it's really important that not only do we engage with it in schools and in colleges and whatever else, but we also support parents in engaging with it. So how do we bring, Teresa, how do we bring emotional intelligence into the home? How do we help parents and others understand that actually, you know, leaving children sitting, watching TV for hours on end is not necessarily going to be that good in terms of supporting their social communication skills. The negatives around screen time and the numbers of young people, you know, who are on my caseload, who I meet, where they're spending upwards of six hours on screens and yet they're being referred to me because of social communication difficulties because they're not able to talk about their emotions and their feelings. It's actually about what are the interventions, what are the programs available, where is the support for parents in all of this? You know, until we get that right, you know, we'll continue to see some of the, the spill-off and some of the, the ramifications later on in terms of the impact on adults and also in society. Now, having a balanced level of optimism, I know we will get it right. Lots of hands that are working towards doing that. So when we do get it right, what do you envision as that utopian world? We got it right. People are emotionally intelligent. They're approaching as their true self, compassion and love. And these things like diversity, equity, inclusion are no longer words we have to use because they just are. We don't have programs for them anymore because they just are. What does that world look like? 
Wow. You know, it looks wonderful. You know, like you, I share that optimism. I, I do think, you know, there's something about the wheels are really turning. You know, I do get a sense of that people are ready for the change. And I think that there's a real opportunity for bringing all of these things together. So one of the key, key areas I'm working on currently is around mental health within the workplace. Not only thinking about how we're supporting children, how we're equipping parents and supporting parents in all of this, but also what are we doing within the workplace mm-hmm. to promote and think about mental well-being and mental health. And I think, in a sense, if we get all of that right in terms of bringing in the language of emotions and bringing in the empathy and building bridges of empathy and supporting individuals and organizations to realize just how important all of these things are, then actually I think it's a world which is going to be much more accepting and inclusive and tolerant of differences. You know, we talk about neurodiversity and a a lot of that is really about making sure that we can uh, maximize on individual potential. So for me, there's something about maximizing on potential irregardless of someone's race, physical characteristics, and, and so forth, and also maximizing on potential irregardless of mental health needs or irregardless of special educational needs labels which are put on them. A world where there's much more inclusion, there's more equity, there's more time made for building in that self-reflection and having those opportunities for individuals to to actually stop and sort of say, I notice that you haven't been quite yourself lately. You know, I notice that you were not smiling as you usually do. Is everything okay? So having those conversations around mental health and mental well-being, and also having those conversations, genuine conversations around difference, around diversity, around inclusion. And bringing all of that together for me is about being truly inclusive and making sure that we're bringing that greater diversity of thought and we're able to reap the rewards of maximizing on everyone's potential. Wow. Hallelujah. And amen to that. And what a perfect sort of hashtag, not anymore, to leave us with there. And you know, a couple of things. One was the, you know, that interesting idea you said about EQ in the home, EQ uh, for the parents. It seems like a great part two to this conversation, perhaps somewhere down the line. And then also, you know, we're all parents. We're also doing a lot of screen time ourselves. So you know, there's, a, there's a battle there between, you know, cutting ourselves that self-compassion, but also recognizing the importance of engaging and role modeling those behaviors. Uh, and then hopefully these people aren't finding their way to your door and with these social communication issues. So I know that we're, we're coming to the end of the time here now. So how can people learn more about the work you're doing, get in touch with you, connect with you? What, what are the best ways? Key ways really through uh, Inclusion Psychologist website. So it's www.inclusionpsychologist.com. For those on LinkedIn, then, you know, I've got a profile on LinkedIn. You can connect with me there. We also have a a Twitter account, uh, which is EDI Sykes. And there's also at Inclusion Sykes, which is Inclusion P-S-Y-C-H-S. Fantastic. We'll make sure those are all included in the show notes. I think I probably probably spelled that wrong, but yeah, Inclusion Sykes, you get get the picture. Too many many Sykes in, 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 in all of those titles. 
Okay, so now we'd always like to finish the conversation with a fun rapid fire Q&A. Um, we've got five questions. There is a definite emotional flavor to these questions, so you'll feel perfectly at home with them, I'm, I'm sure. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, number one, which emotion catches you off guard most often? Oh, gosh. Um... <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm stumped. Um... <laughs> is the answer none are you the your eq is so high you're not i think i think yeah i mean i you know i can't think of anyone over any over another no none Pace, score i'm aspiring <laughs> <laughs> okay so on those rare occasions when perhaps one of those things does just creep up there slight little simmer on the boil what would you do to regulate that emotion in that moment given your 30 years of expertise I like to meditate. So taking time just to center myself, sitting, you know, whether it be in a dark room or, you know, or somewhere where it's just silent and, and just gathering my thoughts. You know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in kind of making space for that kind of connection with your inner self and, and just being and, and not running around doing. Perfect. So um, uh, number three, what's next in your personal evolution? I think what's next is performing to my full potential. I mentioned before that I've had some knocks and, and I've picked myself up and I kind of feel like I've got so much more to offer in this area. And I feel that actually, you know, what's next for me is about realizing my full potential and, and working with others to make a true and meaningful contribution. And, I, you know, in terms of the changes which are required in this space. Perfect. Well, it sounds to me like you're definitely on the way to doing that. Um, number four, the question is, when your, best, when your best friend is having a meltdown, what do you say to them? I remind them just of how great they are. I think sometimes meltdowns come from that questioning of the self and the anxiety which builds up during those times. So, you know, I usually try and remind them of how they've solved problems you know, in the past and just how great they are and, and that they can get past anything. Awesome. Yeah, it's just so easy to uh, get into that kind of tunnel vision perspective when you're having that meltdown and lose consciousness of all the other fabulous things or the gratitude things that you, you've done in the past. So, all right, last but not least, number five, in this moment, what are you most looking forward to or most hopeful for? In this moment, I think what I'm most looking forward to is publication of the six conceptual stages framework. I've been approached by a number of local authorities to offer some support and challenge to their schools. I've also been approached by a couple of universities in the United States to work with them on a diversity and inclusion panel. So I'm really looking forward to publishing some of my work and setting up a dedicated website for the six stages conceptual framework which will be coming out in the next month. And I'm looking forward to individuals being able to visit that website, carry out their assessment, and then receive an action plan in terms of what they can do to move forward in terms of those stages. I'm also looking at you know, organizations doing the same. Well, thank you so much for being such a, a wonderful and open sharing guest. I find you know, the work that you're doing truly inspiring and, and the voice that you're sharing 
is so impactful because it's more than a voice because you're actually going out there and, and, and in the coal face and you're doing this action you're implementing your own frameworks you and that you're doing it at that educational level the young level that we've talked about i've been you know banging on about that I'm sorry <laughs> but i think it's so important that we we get that message across as early age as possible so you know, i'm filled with hope and and, and, and gratitude for what next year is going to unfold for you. So thank you so much for sharing that with all our listeners. Thank you. Pleasure. I would echo that the work is so important. I'm really happy we were able to have this conversation and give a broader audience this information, knowledge, experience, and connection to you. So when they hear, oh, she's doing education, I'm a teacher. I would love for this to come into my school. Now I'm going to connect with her and see how we can get that going. Just brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of TNT. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review. And when you're ready for your personal evolution, check out Reese at trueselfcoaching.com. And for your emotional intelligence revolution, check out Teresa at iqeqtq.com.